I mentioned that we're going to go to Galatians chapter 4, uh, because this month that's going to be the, the theme passage or theme verse for our consideration of Christmas. This may be a bit of an overstatement, and maybe it's just wishful thinking on my part, but I said that one of my goals in the, these weeks and our time together is to consider the whys and the hows and the wheres of Christmas. Not only what, which I hope comes across clearly, the what is is that God sent forth His Son, born of a virgin, in order to live a life that we couldn't live, to submit Himself to the wrath of God and absorb the death that we all deserved so that we could be found in Him and have hope. That's, that's the what of Christmas. But I mentioned last week that sometimes people make behind-the-scenes footage. They go behind the camera. They ask questions of the people that are interacting with and in the midst of it. And I think the Galatians chapter 4 is one of those kinds of passages. It helps us to ask and answer the questions behind Christmas so that we have a more full and a deeper way, maybe a better vocabulary to describe what is happening at this time of year because it is massively important to us. Christmas is a massively important point of the Christian faith. And what I hope in these, these weeks is that we are learning a, a vocabulary and a language and have a depth to our ability to describe and say what was happening at this time of year. So let's read together. Let's look at the fourth verse of Galatians chapter 4. You know, maybe, just maybe, if you pay attention long enough over these weeks or if you, you're able to, to tune in, you, we may even somewhat have this memorized together by the time we're done with these weeks. I'm going to read verses 4 through 7 of Galatians chapter 4. The Apostle Paul says this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. I want to invite you to pray with me. And as I go to pray, because we've just read Scripture, I want to remind you uh, that if you're in the Christian faith, if we're on the team, if we're saying, yes, this is who we are and what we believe, then our confession together is that these words are living and active. Our confession together is that God's Spirit is here in our midst. The thing that we say together and have, have held down through the ages is that what we need most is to be corrected by and to sit under uh, a word from God, not a word from a professional, but a word from God. And so, let's, as we pray, I want to invite you to be to be uniting your heart and active in that way. Let's ask God to do something that only He can do. What if, what if He spoke to us? What if we were different? What if we learned? What if we had a deeper affection for one another and for the lost of the world and mostly for Jesus? Do you believe that that's possible? I, I do, and I think that that's why we gather into this Word every single Sunday. So let's pray to that end. Let's, let's pray now. God, we're needy. We don't have it figured out. There are so many questions and so much uncertainty. There's personal need and then so much need around us when we look. And so I'm grateful, God, thank you for being unchanging 
Thank you for being a complete and total perfect fount of wisdom for us. And thank you that in your perfection, that you invite us to yourself. In fact, you command us to pray. You teach us to pray. You tell us that if we lack wisdom, that we should cry aloud to you and you give generously. So God, as your children here this morning, we want to obey you. We want to follow you and hear from you. So we're asking, Father, would you please give us wisdom this morning? Wisdom to see our own hearts in a true light. Wisdom to confess and understand our weaknesses and our temptations. Wisdom to see right from wrong. And perhaps most of all, God, would you give us eyes to see the our softened hearts and ability to be wise enough to cast ourselves upon Christ. I thank you for a moment like this. We thank you for a place to gather, for people to be with, a family that you've given us. We thank you for beautiful things like candles and wreaths and colors. May all of this contribute to our worship of you this morning. We ask Holy Spirit, move in our midst, and we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we started looking at Galatians chapter 4 by describing the story or a way to describe Christmas as triune and in the fullness of time and the eternal Son. Those are some components. Those are words or concepts that we talked about on how to tell the story of Christmas And so if last week ended off with us thinking about the reality that Jesus has existed before time began, that within the Godhead, within God himself, he determined to redeem mankind before the foundation of the world, and if our worship and our discovery of Christmas starts with Jesus, who is eternal, who is fully God and has been forever, then this week, and the way that our text unfolds for us in Galatians chapter 4 is for us to consider Jesus in the flesh. The technical word for this, the Bible kind of word, the theological word is incarnation. So if last week we ended on Jesus in his preexistence, this week, which seems fitting since we're 11 days or so from Christmas morning, this morning is perhaps the most obvious and the most direct Christmas conversations we can have, and that is to consider the Son of God, fully God, eternally God, worthy of worship God, being born in human flesh. Today is about the incarnation. I'm going to use three words to describe the incarnation. So if you think to yourself, well, what do we mean when we say that Jesus was born? That in some ways he began to be something that he was not previously, though he was previous. What do we mean by the incarnation? And I'm going to use three words that hopefully will be simple enough for us to follow along with. The first is I want to consider the, this word, foregoing. You know what it means to forego something, right? There's a, there's a giving up in it. So there's a foregoing that takes place in the incarnation. Then there is, get this, a going in the incarnation. That seems pretty straightforward. There's foregoing, and then there's going. And then finally, I want to consider and think about that the fullness of the incarnation also really means that we consider what Jesus 
underwent. So we're going to use undergoing. Got it? There's foregoing, and then there's going, and then there's undergoing. And I think this helps us in, in small little pieces to rightly describe and to understand the incarnation. What do we mean that God is with us, Emmanuel? Well, it at least means these three things, that as it pertains to the Son of God, there is a foregoing involved, and there is a going involved, and then there is an undergoing that is involved. This passage just described to us in Galatians chapter 4, that in the fullness of time, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, who was born of a woman, born under the law. And it's that end of verse 4 that we're going to consider and look at as it relates to these things. In order to, I believe, describe what it means that Jesus came in the flesh, when we start with and consider that He has been preexistent, in order to describe the fact that He came in the flesh, we have to really think for a moment about what He gave up. And what He gave up was perfect, eternal glory and union with the Father and Spirit. In order to come, whenever your presence is offered to something or somewhere, it means that you are not, at least fully in that sense, you are not where you were. Or in order to make a decision, in order to commit in one direction, it means that all other directions are closed off. In this particular instance, it means that the possible direction of not going, of not taking on flesh, of not redeeming humanity from the fallen state that they were in, it means that that has forever been put off. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 7, I think is one of the best places to describe this part of the incarnation. It's going to say, it's going to describe Jesus as having his hands open rather than grasped. Let's read together from the third verse of Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, starting in the third verse, I'm going to confess to you something as I start reading the third and the fourth verse. The third and the fourth verse do not specifically have to do with Christmas. I just think you might, we might need it. Is that fair? Can, can I do that? I'm making an editorial decision as a pastor in 2020. Let's start with verse 3 then. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. This text tells us that though he was previously in the form of God, that's, that's the way that the, the writers of Scripture are often putting language to it. It's a condescension. It's a babbling in toddler language to try to describe God. He was previously preexistent in the form of God, but then look what it says in order for the incarnation to take place. It says that though he was in that form, that Christ Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, what Jesus had to do in order for the incarnation to be real is he needed to open his hands. 
what was previously his, what he in his rightful power and place and authority could have held on to forever, he let go. There is significance and great grace in foregoing. Many times when we describe something, especially the way that we interact with one another, some of the significance that we can offer to someone is to give them something that we could have given to anyone else or any place else. I think of presents most often because, of course, we're talking about Christmas, and that's what Jesus gave to us ultimately. It was his presence. But I think about the words that we use when we think about being somewhere. You didn't have to be here. You shouldn't have come. Anyone would do, or anyone could be here. I think about the significance of the way the Bible speaks about presence and what we can offer to one another when we bear one another's burdens. You see, when you have come somewhere and committed to something or chosen one particular path, implicitly what people understand and receive before you ever show up, in the moment of your coming, what they implicitly understand is that you have given up all other options. You have foregone the opportunities. Do you remember economics class? What do they call this kind of thing? It's an opportunity cost. And the greater the opportunity cost, the greater the commitment is to the thing that you're committing to. So, for instance, if you are a massive, let's pick a football team that's worthy of respect and honor and glory. It's the Vikings, for instance, okay? We'll go with the Vikings. I've come around in my old age. When I was a child, I resented the fact that all of my family and people around me liked the Vikings. I was a rebel who liked to win. But I've come around, and now I'm a, I'm a well-wisher at least, if not a fan. So imagine in the midst of a Super Bowl, the Vikings finally get to play with, a person who you know to be the largest and greatest fan of them, in order to be a blessing to you, an encouragement to you, perhaps you have fallen on hard times, perhaps you were in a hospital, perhaps you have gone through something devastating and a loss, and that person in the midst of that particular moment shows up at your house. What will be amazing to you is not only the love that they're offering you in the moment, but what you know they gave up, that actively right now they could have been doing something else of great value to them. That would leave the person humbled. That would make you say to yourself, wow, I can't believe. Many of the greatest stories concerning gifts are about what has been given up. There's a wonderful, wonderful story about a love between a husband and a wife and them planning in their poverty a wonderful gift for one another. One who sells something that was of great value in order to provide for the other in this instance, hair and watch. You know this story? And by the time they come to give the, the gift to one another, they realize that they have both given up the thing of great value that they were trying to serve one another with. And not much more needs to be said about that story except to realize 
that the gift that was given, the greatest measure of the gift that was given in that story and in others is to understand the opportunity cost. What was given up matters. And so when the Bible says to us that God sent forth His Son, we should consider immediately and realize to ourselves, wow, this means that the Son was foregoing some previous place and experience. When Philippians says to us in in chapter 2 that equality with God was not a thing that Jesus grasped onto, this is an invitation for us to worship and to consider the great value of the gift of Jesus coming in His incarnation is what He gave up. And here is my guess. My guess is that if you are tempted to downplay the glory of God, if you are tempted to downplay or to not think on the wonders of heaven, if you are a person who may be tempted to not understand what kind of union and love is represented in the triune God, then you may be, without even knowing it, tempering and damping down your ability to receive the gift of the incarnate Son. What did it mean to give up glories eternal? What did it mean in some measure to have a sending party? There is loss in what was foregone. And I think to ignore this fact is to deny the relationships of God and to put on Him a kind of mechanical, mathematical story of redemption that does not represent itself well in Scripture. God represents Himself as relational and personal and in union and in love Father, Son, Holy Spirit, a perfection of community. And so, when God says that He is Father, and Son says that He is Son, and He constantly sneaks away to pray and to find communion with the Father, and when He describes with joy that He is one with the Father, and longs to be obedient to the Father, and wants to go back to Him, these are all clues and hints of what was foregone for the Son to be a gift to us in the incarnation. I see a picture of familial sacrifice, like a mom teary-eyed and letting go of her kid off to school. Except that would be a, a much lesser, not to downplay your tears, mom, but a much lesser thing So when you tell yourself and when we tell others and we gather around to celebrate Christmas, let us not forget or just skip straight to the going and Jesus coming. We must think on and realize that what was given up, the opportunity cost, I would say, I mean, you could imagine some of the greatest opportunity costs in the the world, what was given up. You know, there's stories of people who were early investors and founders of Apple and gave it up for a few thousand dollars or... Someone made a decision for a career, and looking back, you think, wow, what if they had only? There was a king of England who gave up the whole throne for a woman that he loved. I mean, we we all know stories of great opportunity cost. 
But we posit Christmas because there has been no greater opportunity cost in the history of the world. I don't care the economy or the place or the time. Jesus did not regard equality a thing to be, with God a thing to be grasped. In addition to foregoing, the second thing that we say, the second part of the story that we tell, is that there was, in fact, a going. And this is a mystery so, define, so divine and so unthinkable, and yet we must put it in words because that is the reality that is given to us. Somehow and in some way, by a gift of the Holy Spirit coming to a virgin, God in all of His fullness comes to dwell in and to be in union with a baby who takes on human flesh. What a magnificent and a wonderful reality. Commenting on this, John Murray, who is a really thoughtful, wonderful wordsmith of theology. He says that the thought of the incarnation is stupendous. It's stupendous because it means the conjunction in one person The going of Jesus means that somehow, in the conjunction of one person, in that one person, all that belong to God and all that belong to manhood together dwelt. All that belong to God and all that belonged to manhood together in one. That is the incarnation. That's the mystery of it, the miracle of it, that the Spirit of God upon knowing that the Father is sending and the Son has agreed eternally to go, then the going takes place by the Spirit of God bringing about a miracle of the Son of God in the womb of Mary. And this is what we confess. I think that in the same way that if we're tempted to ignore, to not think on well the glories of heaven and what does it mean to be perfectly unified forever, we have, we have some idea of this, but all of our relationships are, are marred by sin in some way, so I don't think we have a perfect idea. And so we talk about what Jesus had to forego to come, and that should help our worship. I would say that in the same way, if we have a, a low understanding of what it means for life to come into this world, just life, period, that we may not fully understand or be able to worship well at Christmas, what did it mean that Jesus went well, here, perhaps more than ever, is a reality evident that is constantly evident, is that, and that is that the Holy Spirit must move and that God is active in the creation of life, no matter where, let alone in a moment when God Himself must indwell this world. It says in Galatians, this simple little phrase, He was born of a woman. But we know from what the Manalos read earlier, as well as many, many other accounts in the Gospels, that this reality that God was born in a manger and took on human flesh, that God who was previously eternal and had all of the glories and all of the union and all the love of heaven, had little tiny baby fingers and hunger pangs and made himself dependent on his parents is astounding. If you've been in church for a long, long, long time, my guess is that you've heard this story every single year for as long as you've called yourself a Christian and probably longer before that when your friends or your parents dragged you to church. 
And what I wonder is, and what I pray every single year is, God, how do we not make this rote and routine where we have come to yawn at the fact that God could somehow come, that Jesus went and put on human flesh? I did not pay this baby to cry (laughs) at this exact moment. If part of the glory of the incarnation of Jesus is the opportunity cost of what he gave up, perhaps a second or a secondary part of the glory of what the incarnation is as a gift to us is what Jesus put on. I believe that it's in the contrast of these things, of what was given up as well as what was not grasped, as well as what his reality was at the moment of his birth in human flesh, has there been a greater contrast in the history of the world than those two states? What a humble thing. Imagine the possibilities. I think about some of the ways that I can be, you know, describing well, what's the contrast like, or how does this work? And I think one of the first things I think about is like Marvel superhero movies. Because sometimes in those movies, in order to fix a problem, someone has to go somewhere, right? Sometimes someone has to, you know, leave their Norse kingdom, or whatever it is. Or they have to travel across the world, or they have to put on their suit. And I think to myself, well, if that was the case, and if the eternal triune God discussed forever before coming to a covenant of redemption, what would it look like to save and how is this going to work? And if it came to the point where they were unified that Jesus must go, I wonder if there were any other discussions of how he would go. You know, Adam was made a fully functioning man right from the start. Maybe Jesus could have said something like, okay, fine, if I have to go down there, that's great. I love them and we love them. Let's go do this. Um, Could you make me really strong with a lot of muscles though? What if I rode down on a cloud and just announced that I was human? What if I just showed them? You know, this is possible because at the resurrection, he walks straight out of the tomb. He goes through walls apparently, yet he's still fully human. He's able to eat. He convinces them of the flesh that he has. In other words, if you and I thought for a while, we could imagine other, less lowly, less humble ways for Jesus to go. And yet, the reality of Jesus' submission, the reality of his humility in going was so full and so deep and so real that he submits to being born like other humans are born. And so at Christmas time, we sing about mangers and helpless babes and mothers who are nursing and no cries that are heard and swaddling clothes. And we say all these things and we describe them again and again, not only because they're true, but I think in hopes or in awe of the difference between the states of what Jesus gave up and what he came to be 
for us. Christmas is glorious in the going of Jesus, what that actually meant for him to be sent here and to come. Not only that, but finally, and I told you there was going to be three of these concepts, right? There was the foregoing, and then the going, and then finally the undergoing. So this little phrase in Galatians chapter 4 says that Jesus was sent, and he was born of a woman, and then this phrase, born under the law born under the law. And those four words are full of meaning. Those four words consist in massive and major hardship and suffering and inconvenience. Born under the law means that Jesus came and took on human flesh, not only born as humans are born, but living in a fallen world that fallen humans live in. One of the greatest confessions of faith, Westminster in the 17th century, describes a list of things that it meant. These are the list of things that Jesus had to undergo in order for us to receive him as our Savior and as Lord. Here's a few of the things. First, it describes this as Christ's humiliation. Here's just a few of the things that were undergone by Jesus according to this particular confession. Not only that he was humbled to be born, so we described in his going, but that he was born in a low condition. It's a great way to describe it. He was born in a low condition. You think about the fact that Jesus not only submitted to being born as other humans are born, but born into a family that had no power. He was born into vulnerability from the start. He was born in a low condition. He was made under the law, that in some way Jesus who is the Word Himself, who was there at the beginning of all creation, comes underneath the standards of the law and the judgments of the law and the implications of the punishments for breaking the law that the world is under. There's an additional thing in the list, this confession in particular says, that is, uh, I think, a devastating way to describe it, but true. It says that Christ's humiliation also consisted in this, that he was undergoing the miseries of this life. Doesn't that just seem a little sad? It seems a little bit pessimistic, and yet it is real. Just because the Son of God was born in a vulnerable place, and just because he was here to accomplish something that we all needed to be accomplished, didn't mean that the miseries of this life ended. The world didn't stop spinning, and people didn't stop sinning, and famines didn't stop coming, and murders didn't stop happening, and struggles for power were ongoing, and bodies were still creaking, and hunger still happened, and thirst still happened. People were still betraying one another. I mean, think about all the miseries and sufferings of this life. Jesus submitted himself to undergo that for us. More than that, what did Jesus undergo for us? Well, eventually, of course, we know that he underwent great temptation to obey the law for us. Next week, we're going to consider and focus squarely on the reality of the incarnation. Martin Luther once said that the manger and the cross are very, very near to one another. 
but it's impossible to talk about what Jesus underwent in knowing that He was coming to be in the flesh without mentioning and realizing that He underwent the wrath of God for us, perfectly submitted to the law the entirety of His life, and then perfectly and humbly submitted to a cursed death on a cross. When we think of what Jesus underwent for us, why do we celebrate Christmas? Why is He worthy of all praise? Why is He the object of our worship? Well, not only because of what He had to give up in order to come, not only that He actually submitted to being born as babies are born, and He did come, but also then in His life here, what He underwent, if you're keeping track, at least it's this list of things. He was born in vulnerability in a low condition. He was born under the law. He was born to undergo all the miseries of this life. He submitted himself to the wrath of God. He died a cursed death on a cross. God himself, the author of life, submitting, knowing that in the incarnation he was going to have to undergo the punishment of death. Furthermore, think of this, that baby, that child who at one point had, had grasped, existed eternally in perfect union with the Father forever, they threw him in a tomb and closed the door. Buried. And by most, forgotten. At least for a little while. We have to wait till Easter to tell that story, right? We have to wait a little while. Jesus, in saying yes, Jesus, in committing with the Father and with the Spirit in this triune plan of redemption, Jesus, in going, and then Jesus, in undergoing, gives to us one of the greatest pictures of love and generosity and grace that could be imagined. In fact, I think it's beyond imagination to think that anyone would do this for us. And in so much as we see a gap and a contrast between the bigness and the glory of God and the lowliness of this life, if we paint those in drastic contrast, then Jesus coming in to fill the gap will become glorious to us and precious to us. I think about the words of the songs that we sing at Christmas time. Oh, come let us adore Him. And I pray and I think to myself, what does it look like for us to adore Him? Like if you describe something you adore, I guess at a minimum it means that we have time to think on, on Him. But more than that, adore is, uh, is both seemingly like an, it's a, a feeling of affection, but then also an act in many ways, so that we take time to think on Jesus in this Christmas season. And then we also stir our affections to Him, toward Him. We ad- adore in the sense that we pray for and we ask the Spirit of God to move us in loving Him more. And then more than that, adore as a, as a verb, 
Adore is an action. Adore is something that we say, let's partake in this. Let's not let another day go by. Let's not another, let another December flip the page of our calendars without stopping to pause and wonder at the incarnation of the Son of God. I've confessed to you often in the past that it's these kind of seasons of the church. It sounds counterintuitive and it's odd, but Christmas time and then Easter, because we rehearse them every single year, for someone who communicates these things, I can go under a very, very real sort of anxious temptation. You know what the anxious temptation is? Got to be fresh. Got to say something new. Got to really surprise people. And then I think to myself, yeah, that's right, I got to really surprise people because the Son of God submitting to be born as a baby in reality isn't surprising enough anymore or something. And so, what I'm trying to do is to go back through and to tell you the same old story. And then trusting that the Spirit of God makes these things what they really are which is so astounding and so precious and so glorious to us that all of our songs and all of our decor and all of our gift-giving, which is subsequent and derivative, that these things would all make us erupt in worship. And so when we describe, not only to our own hearts, but to the people around us, well, what does it mean that Jesus came, that we have a deeper adoration and a deeper vocabulary? And so I'll say to you directly, Worship with me this Christmas. Realize that when you sing and when you pray and when you say these things, there's meaning behind them for you. Jesus gave up the glories of heaven. For you, Jesus submitted to be born in human flesh, and for you, he submitted to the miseries of this life. This is love, this is a gift. And it's to be received joyfully. So let's, let's pray that God allows us to do that. For, for coming. And I thank you too for the commands of Scripture that are often so counterintuitive to us to look on these things and believe, to rest in these things and receive. And so, God, I pray as an application of truth here this morning. I pray as a way to put this into motion so that we wouldn't be people who read the Word or see it and then walk away deluding ourselves and not obeying. God, I ask for Your grace to obey this morning by reading about the incarnation of Jesus and rejoicing. God, help us to obey in joy. And God, I pray that in reading about what you have determined to do to save us by coming in the flesh, I pray, God, that we would obey you by resting and receiving. of all the things that grab our attention in these days and in these weeks. God, help us to not backseat the foundations of our faith. 
Father, we love you. Jesus, we thank you for coming. We thank you for sacrificing, for moving on our behalf. I pray that we would be bound to you in spirit and in truth, especially this Christmas. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.